0: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, well, today we're talking about publishing your very first game. I get emails all the time from people looking for the 101. Game Design 101, Publishing 101, what are the first steps? I'm overwhelmed, I have no idea what to do, who do I contact, where do I go? And so today we're talking to Travis Winstead and David Smith from Winsmith Games. Gentlemen, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for having us on.
0: I'm glad that you guys are here. I'm excited to talk about this. You know, like I said in the, uh, the intro there... This is something a lot of people are struggling with. They don't know where to begin. That's one of the reasons I started the board game design lab way back when was just trying to help other people that were in the same place that I was of just trying to like, where do I go? How do I figure this stuff out? And so I think this will be a helpful episode to anybody who is, is just starting out or just like maybe on the fence right now. Maybe they're designing games and want to get into publishing, want to run their own Kickstarter, want to figure it out. But they're a little overwhelmed. They're unsure. They're anxious about some things because, you know, we've all seen and, and heard of the horror stories of people who, you know, struck out on their own and started their business. And then swiftly lost hundred grand because they totally screwed up some of the you know some of the things with the Kickstarter or the business side of things or the taxes or the shipping and fulfillment and all that kind of thing. And so I think this would be a helpful uh, show for people that are just trying to trying to figure things out. But before we get into that, who are you guys? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing.
2: Hey, Gabe, I'm David Smith. Um, I've gotten into game design for a while, even as a kid. Me and my brothers would draw our own roll and write you know games on sheets of paper and cardboard. Me and my brothers, we had action figure wars where we made up, you know, rules and special abilities and drafted, you know, action figures and would have these day long, you know, battles. Um, So I've that I've always been a designer in that aspect. Uh, Growing up, me and Travis, I've known him since sixth grade. We played magic. I uh, played a lot of D&D in our group. So even like designing heroes and characters and, you know, classes and stuff. And so that's kind of, you know, my game, my game design background. It, for me, similar. Um, I've,
1: I've always been a, a gamer, played a lot of card games. So I started out playing the Pokemon card game, did that a lot, um, got competitive with that, got competitive with Magic the Gathering. And that was sort of what I had played the most of. And then I've kind of switched over to board games. Uh, and so... <clears throat> I don't do a lot of the design. I do a lot of the sort of business background. But um, I think one thing that's uh, that, that helped David and I is both of us we have um, we we've always kind of said we want to start our own business, not necessarily together. But I've always said I want I'd like to start my own my own business. Dave said the same thing. We're both engineers, but in completely different fields, so there's not really any overlap there. Um, so the the gaming you know we kind of always. Played games together, grew up together, um, lived near each other, and this was sort of like a happy medium for the two of us to say we could really take that dream of owning a business. We could do it together, so we could, you know, you know, divide and conquer and do something that we actually love. Because a lot of times, you know, as as an engineer, I don't know if I'd want to own my own engineering business in my current field. I don't know if that would be something that I would truly enjoy because I know a lot of what goes into that, Um, and it's a, a tough market to get into, but designing and publishing board games is something that i think that we've we have a passion for and gaming in general we have a passion for and that's sort of led us to say let's combine forces here we can we can actually kill two birds with one stone um and and get into this thing and try and figure out you know make our make
0: those dreams kind of come to reality yeah definitely and you guys have a really smart setup in in that one of you is really the lead in the design space and then the other is the lead in the business space. I feel like a lot of times people get together and they're both the designers. And it's like, well, somebody's got to run the business side of things. And so I think it's smart to have somebody that fills your gaps, right? That understands the the things that maybe you don't and and you can kind of, not necessarily, okay, you do all of this and I'll do all of that. I don't think that's how it's going to work in a game design or a publishing company because you have to wear so many hats at any given time. But for someone to say, okay, I'm going to take the lead on this And then you can do the supplemental stuff. And on this other thing, you take the lead and I'll do the supplemental things. I think it's a really, really smart setup. And so walk me through how you guys decided. Like, were you already designing games together and then decided, okay, let's just do a publishing company, Let's do this thing. Or did you kind of have that idea from the beginning and start designing games that you knew you wanted to publish down the road? It was
2: maybe a little less organic than that. Like, I started designing games uh, after getting into board games probably about five or six years ago, uh, or even seven years ago, uh, just, I'd gotten the bug of playing a lot of board games. And then I was look. I got into dungeon crawlers and I just wanted to find the perfect one. And eventually I said, you know what? I like designing stuff. So why not just make it? And so I got into like, I delved into the game design space, you know, a bunch, you know, reading a lot of blogs and listening to podcasts. And so, um, I started doing that on my own for a while, and then eventually Travis and I, obviously we talked about it some, so I, th- I think then that conversation started of, of how we want to maybe take this opportunity to try and do this together. And I, I would add that you know Dave does a lot of the,
1: he, he's, he's already had a couple of designs when we started talking about this, so it was kind of like, how are we going to bring these designs to life? Well, as we've always talked about, we've always wanted to kind of start a business separately, but this, this gave us an opportunity to kind of do it together. Um, my my degree has a lot of business oriented courses. So I have at least a little bit of a, a flavor of marketing and uh, financing and uh, economics and that sort of thing. And I've always had an interest in that type of stuff. So it kind of made sense to say, all right, you already have all these design ideas, I can, as a gamer, I will help and do a lot of the playtesting testing and, and the development of like, ah, I don't know, like this rule or this rule. Um, but in terms of all the, the designs, Dave has most of them at this point. And I, I kind of said, I could help here and take the business load off uh, off of you and, and sort of go deep on that, as well as still getting that fix of like owning a board game company and doing something that you love and playing board games. So those two things kind of help overlap and kind of brought us together.
0: Yeah, definitely. And how long ago did you guys decide to go into business?
1: I would say like uh, we talked about it for a while, but we officially like, you know, started the the LLC and all that stuff uh, three years ago. So we've been and we and again, we can kind of get into more of this of, uh, hey, we're going to start this business. We got a great game. Let's let's go. Let's go hard on that game. And it turns out that wasn't the right game. It was not it was never it wasn't going to work out the way we thought it would, even though we had gotten a lot of good feedback. Um, you know, going through that development process. So I would say three years ago is when we officially started Winsmith Games, but it's been a lot of, I would say, storming um, of what are we actually going to do and kind of running into some brick walls as to are these games really good? And the other part of it, which I know we were going to talk about is, yes, the game is one of our games we think is really good and is done, but it's big and it's something that it would be very uh, aggressive for a first project. So that that sort of you know, we're almost like to the finish line. All right, let's do this. And then we kind of start getting some quotes and saying, oh, this thing's massive. It's going to be tough for us to do. Uh, so we got to step back and say, I don't know if this is the best idea to take this leap. And we don't know what we don't know, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, all right, you've been in business three years. You got your first game up on Kickstarter right now. So it's the first game that's actually going to be uh, manufactured, printed, published, all that good stuff, and then shipped out to people. So three years is pretty good, bit of time in between starting and and actually getting a game, you know, out there in the world. And so I, I don't, that's not a bad thing. I think a lot of times people rush into things and they, they they get way too excited about something and then they end up, you know, putting a lot of money into a bad idea, a lot of money into something they're excited about that the market is not excited about. And so I think slow playing some things is, is really, really smart, really, really wise. But I like let's get into what you were just saying. So, you know, three years ago, I'm assuming you had some really cool ideas that have not come to fruition, right? And you said, you know, you got one that's that it's done, but it's too big. So let's walk me through kind of the the thought process into ultimately publishing the one that uh, you've got on Kickstarter right now. So you had other ideas. Tell me about those and then why you chose not to go those directions and then why you ended up with 10-gallon tank, which we'll talk about in a minute.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, like I'd mentioned, I'd gotten into deep into like dungeon crawlers. I grew up on D&D, so I was playing a ton of like the D&D adventure games. Were, my first Kickstarter backing, I think, was... Is called Myth, like this really fun like dungeon crawler with some deck building into it. And uh, eventually, I wanted to design, you know, my own uh, dungeon crawler, something very story driven, heavy. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to unlock new heroes as you played and have this unfolding story. Um, <clears throat> so, my obviously my first take at a game design was this massive, massive dungeon crawler. Um, And so I'd worked on that for a while and I fell into that trap of, you know, spending hours literally picking pictures to go on the prototype cards and just really delving deep into this time sink. Um, And so eventually, you know, Travis, I think, might have played a, a couple later iterations of it. I played with a bunch of friends and I just realized it obviously wasn't going anywhere. And so... I should start looking at other ideas. And so then we worked on another game for a while and Tra- Travis started getting involved in another game that we were calling GameCon. It was like this mock um, gaming convention where there were booths and you'd pick a booth and you play this little mini game. And that's when we actually started uh, talking to another developer that I actually uh, met through one of your interviews with a board game developer. And so, first of all, thank you for that. Uh, and so, uh, we talked with him, and we played the game a lot. We played the game. We have a local gaming de- game design group here in DC um, called Break My Game. And so, we played there some. We played at Unpub, like our first time going at, a, at Unpub, and we that was also the first time we met this game developer in person. And he played it, and man, he just he was critical, and then in the best most constructive ways and that was kind of an eye-opening and after that point like we really started realizing okay these are the questions we need to be trying to answer when we're developing and designing a game
1: um yeah and i and so one of the the reason we thought it was such a good idea that the first game was again dave was saying you're going to a gaming convention but we were taking our, our idea was to take the most popular games that everybody liked and to get the a small essence of that game. So one game we kind of talked about that, well, that I love personally is Twilight Struggle. And so, you know, you have cards that do multiple things and you're trying to take the struggle for for resources all across the board. So the idea was you would go to a booth and that booth would have a Twilight Struggle watered down type of game. So you kind of get a feel for a bunch of different types of games. Um, but that kind of just led to what it ended up leading to. And what we found out through this game developer was that we, you really weren't, There was nothing new and you weren't actually bringing much to the table. You were kind of like half simulating stuff, um, but it was kind of disjointed. You had a lot of weird pieces. You had a lot of just a ton of just upkeep for the game. And we really thought it had been testing well. Of course, again, another trap, testing with your family, testing with your friends, even maybe testing with your local gaming group. You can kind of get siloed into one mindset, like a groupthink mindset. Um, And so once we got with this developer who to his credit, doesn't really care about our game, honestly. He he cares in the sense that he wants to help us, but he's not invested at all, which we really appreciate. Um, and I think Dave and I both have a similar personality where we don't mind getting critical feedback. Um, the, I actually work at an office and and one of the guys said, which I really like this quote is, feedback is a gift. And so you really need to take what people say, assuming it's not you know offensive towards you, but Critical feedback and take that to heart and so we really did that and that's when we kind of we had already actually paid an artist to give us like a concept proof of a couple pieces of art so again failing the failing forward and getting that into that trap of already going deep on a game when you didn't know if it was good or not so that's kind of how we started with that and we realized okay we really need to one. Take an idea, make sure that it's something that's not already out there, make sure that it tests well with multiple different types of groups. And oh, by the way, can we actually make it? So we started to think about that as well to kind of get a and that's why I think our process has taken so long um, to get to where we are now.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think this is something a lot of new designers struggle with. And that's, you feel like every design you, you create, every game you design just feels like a whole bunch of games that you, that you already love. Right. So I got an email recently from a guy. He's like, yeah, I'm, I keep designing these games, but my biggest struggle is that I, I step back from it. And I realize, oh, this is just like that game on my shelf that I love. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think that's a typical thing. Like I remember when I first started out years ago, I feel like I designed 10 different versions of pandemic. Like everything I was designing, was like, eh, basically pandemic except in space is this basically pandemic except the Egyptian empire. (laughs) And so I feel like that's a a natural place to begin. And a lot of times people get so in love with their design though, that then they think, yeah, but I'm going to publish it anyway. It's like, yeah, but if it's not, if it's not doing anything new, if you're not really bringing anything interesting or new to the market, it's not a great product. And if you're going to try to start a company, you want to start it with a bang. So you want to start off with something that people go, wow, this is really interesting. This is really intriguing. I've never seen anyone do it this way or something like that. Uh, because really it's just a matter of growing right so i I teach english and i've got a lot of 10th grade students that are writing short stories uh, right now and so they they keep writing what they have already seen right so i've seen different versions of different like um, one kid just basically rewrote mission impossible Uh, another kid rewrote like one of the spider-man movies like they're just rewriting stuff that they've already seen Mm -hmm. but that's okay because they're learning and it's this giant learning process i think that's a, a smart thing to understand is like when you're early on you're just you're just creating to learn. You're designing things you know, just to figure it out. And by the time you've done it for a while and you've designed so many games that are very similar to other games, well, eventually you get this like really interesting amalgamation of style. It's that whole idea like if you copy one person, it's plagiarism. If you copy 10 people, it's research, right? And so <laughs> you know, figuring out other designers to borrow ideas and borrow their methods and borrow the way they do different things or different mechanisms, the more of a repertoire you get, the bigger your resume you know, gets and grows then all of a sudden we get in some really interesting ideas, some brand new original you know, themes and thematic choices and, and design uh, angles and mechanisms, things like that. And so I think it's important if you're listening to this and you're new to this and you're like, why are all my games not very good? Understand that you develop taste before you develop skill. You would know what's good before you can design what's good. And so that's okay. Just grind through that. I think uh, it was Peter Haywood who came on the show a while back and he said, finish a bad game before you try to design a good game that's finished and so the biggest thing just just learn and grow and and do all these things and and take them as learning opportunities. And so I think and let me ask you guys this this from this angle. What made you want to be game designers as opposed to just design that really big dungeon crawl game? Cuz that's a very different thing. A lot of times people have this one big idea, like I want to design this game. It's like, "Well, do you want to design a game or do you want to be a game Designer, So walk me through kind of y'all's thought process with that as you were looking down the road and thinking, okay, we want to be a publishing company, not just make one game. And kind of tell me what you were thinking and how you decided ultimately to move on from that game into something maybe more manageable for a first-time project. Sure.
2: Well, we did know that we don't want to just design and publish one game. We, I enjoy designing. It's a lot of fun. I probably have like 16 games on my Google Drive. You know, Each one has its own folder and has gone through some level of design. Uh, and so we want to design multiple games. We want to publish multiple games. It wasn't just a, let's design one game and see what we want to do after that. It's been a little bit more thought out in terms of let's let's do this. Let's try and design you know multiple games. That's one reason why we're starting with a game that's smaller and uh, like a family weight strategy card game. Uh, so but, it, but I would
1: also add that we we did, and we had a couple crossroad uh, conversations about, you know, <clears throat> we're, we have some of these ideas. Should we just pitch the, these games to publishers? And we actually did pitch a game to a publisher. Um, and and kind of and kind of thought about it and got some feedback on it, um, and it ultimately didn't go anywhere. But uh, so we we have had that conversation a number of times. But we've always kind of come back to, yeah, I mean, we're not we're not in this for the money. I'm not saying that everybody who designs and, and gets somebody else to publish their game is in it for the money, but we wanted to kind of create and build something that scratches the itch of owning your own business and running a successful business. So we kind of always fell back on that as to. All right, well, we, we want to f- try and make the smartest, if we're going to do this, we're going to try and make the smartest decision so that we have the least amount of risk and the highest chance of success. And so we've, uh, we've, we've again, three years later, we're still, you know, there's still a lot of things we don't know. And we're still kind of treading into uncharted waters on some things because uh, you don't really know what you don't know until you get hit with it. Um, but yeah, we we that was an important point that we sat down and talked about for a while of, Should we just pitch this game or just start pitching games uh, and and not try and publish them? But we always kind of came back to this is one thing we've had on our on our bucket list to do. And so we want to we want to actually build a business.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a moment. Back when you were first getting going, walk me through all the steps you had to go through. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of the steps you had to go through as far as incorporating, you know, you guys are a partnership. Did you have, did you come up with some kind of agreement, you know, between the two of you? That way, if, if one of you decides, I hate games, I don't want to do this ever again, the other one can buy the other one. Now, like walk me through any of the business side of things that you had to do early on that other people just need to know, you know, before they get into it.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially in a partnership, uh, one, it needs to be someone that you trust. So, I mean, I've known Dave since I was 12 in middle school. I mean, we went to the same college together. We hung out all since, uh, you know, since then. So we're really close friends. So I would know that I, I know I can rely on Dave that if something, something happened and he weren't able to finish it, we have, we have a conversation as to whether I would take it back on, or if there's some reason I couldn't finish it. I mean, we talked about the three years, part of that three years um, both of us have two kids now and two newborns in that three-year period. So we've had a lot of just, okay, we're going to have to put this on hold for now. Or, hey, we'll go to Unpub and, and and do that. And then we'll go to Gen Con and do first exposure. And then we'll just kind of see and we'll take it slow. And that's kind of part of understanding that life gets in the way, especially where we are now. We're not in our early 20s with no responsibilities uh, other than, you know, work and come home being single and can put all of our time into it. So that was definitely something to consider is how much time can you actually put into this if you're going to do it as a business? Cause it's a ton of work. Um, so then knowing that we wanted to do this and we, we could get each other's backs um, you know, if, if Dave has a, a lot on his plate and I don't, we, we kind of do that. Or if we both have a lot on our plate, let's just go on hiatus. I mean, after, after going down the Kickstarter, we're going down the Kickstarter, we're doing that. But if after this Kickstarter, we need a break, we will talk about it take a break so understanding and having that trust with the the partner that you're going to be with that's huge um, and then then there's just a lot of reading about do you want to start a business if you want to start a business how do you want to set it up for us it made sense for a, a to do an llc um, for tax tax purposes i mean it's it's pretty easy to do um, you you write everything through your own taxes and then um, but but you gain the protection of if there were to be you know some some legal challenges to from someone you're not putting all of your assets at risk so again both of us are married have two kids have houses have mortgages um, we can't put those things at risk so really doing your research on um, you know what what structure do I need to protect me um, that's that's a big thing um, and then you know once you start we I mean. Your podcast has been definitely instrumental in helping us just sift through. I mean, it's like your podcast and, and some of the stuff we read on like Stone is like reading crib notes for, all, for board game design. We don't have to go to do a ton of research. Um, we can at least get that, that surface level of what we need to do and then go deep on the things we don't understand. So I think that's reading a lot and researching and learning from past mistakes of other folks. And that's sort of how we, we never got to the point where we've made any big mistakes. I think because we've read a lot and researched a lot about what people have run into with shipping or freight or any of those nightmares that you don't know. Um, so th- that's sort of kind of, that's sort of how we've evolved from, okay, we do want to do this as a business. We got each other's backs, life gets in the way. So here's how we're going to tackle it. If that Does that answer sort of the question, the starting question?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think one thing t- for anyone to, to think about, especially if you have a partnership or if you have multiple people, it's not just going to be, you know, you by yourself is have it in writing everything. It, it doesn't matter yeah. if this is your best friend in the entire world, because business has a tendency to cause problems in relationships. And so if you don't have stuff in writing, that's all just been you know written down, signed, you know. All, going through the whole legal side of things, whether it's how much we're going to share in the profits or how much we're going to share in the workload. You know, do I own two thirds because I've put a lot more money into this and you own a third and you put all that stuff into writing into agreements. I was actually listening to a podcast uh, yesterday, a business podcast. And this guy was talking about contracts and he said, I don't call them agreements. I call them disagreements because the only time you look at them is when you're in disagreement about something. He's like, well, that's a, Pretty funny cuz if you're in agreement about things that's yeah, all good we don't have to worry about it as soon as we have a disagreement okay now we got to look at the contract now we got to look at the the things we wrote down and make sure that you know we're getting on the same page about things whatever it is and so just have it in in writing i've been telling my seniors you know you're about to go off to college have a, a contract between you and your roommate that way you can always just point to things and say, hey, remember that contract you signed that you weren't going to eat my food out of the fridge? Yeah, you, you just broke that. You know, and just have it in writing because it just helps helps things go a lot smoother and a lot better. Now, as far as the formation of things, did you guys go through like legal Zoom or what did you do on the legal side of things just to get it all rolling?
1: Yeah, I mean, we read a lot about the legal Zoom. Um, for us in Virginia, it's not that hard to, to set up an LLC. What, one thing I was going to add to what your previous comment was, a lot of people will think like, Oh, I just got to do all this paperwork. But in Virginia, to set up an LLC, you must have an operating agreement that must be signed um, as a as a part of. You know, I think you pay a fifty dollar a year fee, and then you you set up your what a like articles of incorporation type of thing, operating agreement, where you say we're going to be 50-50. Here's the main address. Here's all this other stuff, and so that is very valuable. So you can find a lot of. I mean, I think we found a standard template on LegalZoom. I, I don't quite remember if it was LegalZoom or another. Um, another website, but there's templates out there. Just go look for them. Pick your state, and then that will give you all the fill in the blanks, at least to get you started. Now, if there's more, especially if it's somebody that you, I would say, haven't known or trust as well as I trust Dave, um, you, you know, you may want to add more stuff in there to make sure. If there is something about, you know, if I do two thirds of the work, I can come for two thirds of the profits or whatever. Um, our, for us, we have it. We have it fifty fifty. So we're both in the same. Uh, I would say status in life of having enough money to at least do this first project. Um, so we we contribute 50-50. Um, the workload goes back and forth 50-50. Dave has done a lot more on the front end um, because he's done a lot of the game design. Uh, he's He goes to some of the conventions I can't go to, um, but we try and go to as many as possible. So he's done more of the, definitely more of the legwork in terms of the the upfront design. And so now it's kind of on me to do a lot of the, the back end stuff um, with his help. So... For us, it's it's fifty fifty. Um, I again, I would even say we both agree with this. This first game, we're not in it for the money. Um, I don't think we're really in it for the money anyway. It's, I mean, it'd be nice if it's the supplemental income. Everyone wants to be Jamie Stegmeier um, and and do it for a living and wake up every morning and that's what you do all day. But um, for us, it's more of just about the process and saying we actually created something that's successful um, and building that brand, um, no matter how many you know iterations or or games
0: it takes. Yeah, for sure. But one thing I I do want to point out, and as far as the money side of things, you know, none of us are really in for it for the money. I mean, that's not why you get into game design. That's why you get into like investment banking (laughs) or something along those lines. Uh, But if you're going to make any money in this industry, you're probably going to have to be in the publishing side of things uh, because as a game designer, you're just not going to make enough money per game to probably make a living, unless you have some kind of mega hit. You know, if you design the next Dominion, the next ticket to ride, you're going to be okay. But more than likely, you're going to have to design a whole bunch of games per year to come anywhere close to a a living. Now, depending on where you live, if you live in Podunk, Alabama, where I'm from, you could live a lot easier than you can in upstate or, you know, in New York City or something like that. And so it's just something to to think about as well. But publishing side is where the money's at. Because you're a designer, you're making maybe 5%, 7%, 8%. Per game sold, and maybe you sell a thousand copies, maybe five thousand. I mean, that, that's if you sell five thousand copies, you, you've you've done pretty well in the hobby side of the industry. Yeah, and I, I, I would add on to that for- that point, uh, Gabe, what you just said um, in terms of. That's one
1: reason when we when we did pitch the board game uh, to the publisher, even though it, you know they came back and said, I, "I don't know if this is right. This is a really big. And this is the game that was a really big production that we we kind of have on the back burner right now." But we kind of one of the questions we asked was like, "Okay, great, we pitch this and it gets picked up. What did we Winsmith Games, our dream of starting a business, get out of that? Okay, maybe we get a design credit, and really Dave would get the design credit. So I mean, unless he said." I'm designer Winsmith Games. I mean, he's he's going to get the design credit, so we still aren't building that brand. So that was a key thing for us as to, okay, great, this game gets published, but then people eventually forget about it. What what did we actually gain from it, from a business uh, achieving our dream standpoint?
0: Yeah, that's another really good point. Another thing I want to point out is, okay, if Eric Lang goes to CMON Game, if Eric Lang goes anywhere in, in any company he wants to, or Matt Leacock or Rob Dobby, any of those guys, uh, any of those people, if they go to a, a game company and they say, "Hey, I've got this game idea, and it's going to be a hundred dollar retail, and it's got a ton of miniatures and boards and cards and dice, custom dice, all these things. It's going to cost hundred bucks retail." Okay, that company is going to go, "Okay, let's 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 print it, publish it up, let's let's do the whole thing." Because you are Eric Lang and Matt Leacock and you know. If me or you or most of the people listening to this podcast go to one of those companies and say, "Hey, I've got a game that's going to cost hundred dollars retail." Those companies are going to be very, very skeptical because we don't have the track record that those other other designers do. And so I think another thing to think about when you're designing early on, when you're new to it, is be careful of designing giant games that are very, very expensive and have a lot of custom components and custom parts and you know uh, miniatures and things like that. Because uh, publishers are very, very slow <laughs> to publish something like that from an unknown designer because you don't have that track record built up and so even if it's your own company you got to be careful of that we'll talk about that a little more in a minute but even if you're trying to pitch the game be careful because it's going to be harder to get in the door with a big expensive game when you're when you're just starting out as a new designer and so uh, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about your game coming up it's not one of these giant grandiose hundred dollar retail games 10 gallon tank so dave tell me a little more about uh, the game you got coming up it's on kickstarter right now and then we'll get into like the the why's and how's and all that kind of thing from the publishing side Sure. So
2: 10 Gallon Tank is a family weight strategy card game. It plays two to five players in about 15 minutes. And it comes heavily influenced by the fact that I play a lot. Probably 90% of my board games are with my wife, my sister in laws. Uh, I've started a board game club at work that we meet, you know, twice a month. And so most of the games I play are filler games, 30-minute games, even 20-minute party games, 40-minute games or so. Uh, so those are a lot of the games I get to play. I love Sushi Go Party. It's a top one for me. Uh, Sunday Split. Some of these other smaller games, uh, you even mentioned New uh, um, we were talking about uh, New York Slice. Um, so I like a lot of these, these games, and that kind of influenced um, a game design. And so what 10 Gallon Tank is a a split and choose drafting set collection game. And so the premise of the game is that uh, the players are just like these hobby aquarists and you're trying to uh, draft fish and have the most aesthetically pleasing aquarium. There are seven different types of fish and they score points in different ways, just kind of like the different sushis in Sushi Go or cards in Sunday Split. And a couple of things that are unique about the game that We wanted to try and do different, and you know what would set this game apart is the splitting and choosing mechanism is that uh, based on the the number of players, you form the the aquarium deck of all the different fish. And you shovel those together, and every round has three simple phases. First phase is uh, draw a certain number of cards and create this grid, and in most player counts, it's a four by four. And then the second phase is starting with the active player of that round, the first player of the round. They're going to split that one group of four by four into two groups along either a row or grid. Then the next player is going to pick one of those two groups and split it into two groups. And the next one's going to pick one of those three groups and split it into two. So we're going through and splitting these until you have like groups that are, if players are playing correctly. They should be relatively equal in points or how the players are perceiving they're equal. And then after all the splits are done, the third phase is players draft groups. So the start player again gets to pick first what group he wants to add to his his hand and then the next player, then the next player, the next player. And so at the end,
1: at the end of that, uh, you know, you, each fish is going to score differently. There's also each game, there's also a public goal that has uh an objective that you try and meet. So that's another way to score points. So there's going to be a, a, a choices of, okay, I wanna I wanna take this because I have a lot of this certain type of fish, but I also want to try and meet the goal because that could make or break. And a lot of times that the points end up being relatively close. So it's a very tight game. You also have one of the one of the types of fish um, cannibalize one of the other fish, so the gourami requires you to discard another fish that's already in your tank when you get it. So it's more points. So you have to kind of. There's a lot of different balances of each of the different fish plays differently. Also wanted to add um, that Dave had a, a hobby as a kid of having freshwater fish. So another reason that we we really liked this theme was it kind of it kind of played back to Dave's childhood when he he had a lot of uh, freshwater fish in aquarium. So we kind of got the idea there. And then the other thing that's the, the games I think stands out in the game is the artwork that we have. Um, so the artwork we've chosen like the most colorful fish that you can have. We have really we have a really good artist. Um, his name is Alex Alex Pushkarov. Um, so for anybody who's looking for an artist, he's great. Um, but he so he's really brought like that the, the colorful fish and the aquarium with all different types of fish to life. So that's another um, selling point of our games. It's a uh, we think the art is just really uh, top tier. And that was one thing
2: Travis kind of pushed to at the beginning, asking me like, what's this game set apart? What we have the mechanical aspects, but two again, I like Sunday split sushi, go Uh, go nuts for donuts is a very popular one. And those games all have a very similar art style. And so we kind of talked, you know, from a strategic standpoint, publishing standpoint, uh, I was look, we were looking at different artists and we found Alex who does this very vibrant, you know, colorful, beautiful illustrations, and so we thought we could kind of stand stand apart from the illustrations
0: too. Gotcha. Well, first of all, you've introduced a word that I was not aware of, which is aquarist—a a person who likes aquariums—is an aquarist, and that's a, an interesting little vocabulary fun for the day. Yep. But walk me through why this one, because I'm sure you had ten or more other games that could have been your first one, that could have been the first one to go to Kickstarter with, you know, get the art, get the graphic design, all you know, to go down the whole road for why this one in particular
1: okay so this was this was really a strategic decision to publish this one first so we've been talking a little bit about our our 100 complete game so i think we should maybe talk about that um just for a minute to kind of give the frame of why we've chosen this game over another game so the game that we um is, is pretty much done and is really big it's called flicked and furious so it's a dexterity combat racing game and what Makes it such a big production. Well, we we would we plan to have miniatures, but it has this really large neoprene mat, screen printed neoprene, double sided mat. We we tried, I don't know how many, half a dozen different types of material. The neoprene mat is by far the best thing, and it plays so well. Um, the The, the miniatures slide, and it, but to be able to do it and to not have uh, it it requires a really large mat. I want to say it's 84. What, oh no, it's 28 by 44 inches. 28 by 44 inches. So that in itself is, you know, we've been to a number of unpubs uh, in Baltimore, Gen Con First Exposure, uh, where we just had, I would say 15 people, the game only plays like four players. We had like 15 people standing around the game like, when can I play this game? When can I play this game? So we know that the game is good and we've we've had a we had our developer play it and he, it, it's just, it all came down to the production. And so it's a really expensive game to produce, not only because the neoprene mat makes the cost high, but the shipping. It's an awkward pack. We've tried we've folded it every way you could fold a neoprene mat and it just it doesn't fold. You have to roll it. So you get this big product that now you're you're looking at sinking a ton of money into a a product that you are have awkward dimensions for shipping, awkward dimensions for putting on a shelf at a game store. Um, and so to kind of, to kind of wrap that story up, we, that's the one that we, we really would like, that's like kind of our, our number one, number one down the road. Um, but there's no way we would want to take the risk of sinking a bunch of money into a project like that, running into major issues and sort of exponentially multiplying your stuff like freight and shipping on a big project, which we know something about. So we have this other game, 10 gallon tank, which we're really proud of and, and, stands apart because of the art, um, some of the mechanics as well, but it's a family weight game. We can, we can get into the marketplace, uh, you know, fingers crossed, successful Kickstarter, get into the marketplace, learn a lot and have low risk. So our goal is in the neighborhood of, um, eight to 9,000. So that if for some reason we had to go all in on our own bank account, that's doable. The other projects we, we wouldn't be able to do. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Um, having a big hairy game that you're just like, I'm going to go on Kickstarter and I'm going to say $50,000 goal. And oh, by the way, you don't know me. You don't know anything I've done. You don't know how this game plays. You've never played it. Why would anyone want to back that type of game? So that was our strategic thinking of, we need to learn how to go. We need to go through this process once, twice, maybe three times to figure out what what are the, if we're going to make a mistake, let's make a small mistake and something that we can handle as opposed to a massive game that we're, we're gonna to have to pay tons of money with mistakes, so that's how we came with to to want really want to publish ten gallon tank, um, and and we've put a lot of time. I mean, we've been testing this for over a year, probably almost a year and a half now, um, and it's gone to unpubs, break my games, first exposure twice, um, a ton of uh, played it at work with random people, played it with friends, sent blind play tests out. Um, so we we really feel strong about this game, and it's in a spot where. We think it's low enough risk that if we make a mistake, we can still handle it, still get it out to our backers, and then learn from that to take on a more um, a more aggressive project.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's something that a lot of first-time or, or new designers, new publishers don't think about. They don't think about the strategic – they don't think with, with strategy in mind. They think, I want to get a game published. Okay, okay, that, that's cool. But again, are you wanting to publish a game or do you want to become a game publisher? Because that's a very different thing. It has a whole different set of things to think about, different set of strategies. And so this is something I ran into recently actually with my hunted game. So I had the idea for the hunting games, the first two, which were, one was aliens kind of thing. You're on a spaceship running, running around. Another one is like terrorist theme. You're, you're shooting up bad guys in this big tower. And I had lots of different ideas early on. Um, But one of them was a fantasy theme that was going to be a much, much bigger game, had a lot more going on. And I thought, okay, this would be really cool to do first because I love or people love fantasy and they're going to be drawn to that. You know, fantasy games do very, very well on Kickstarter. But then I thought, but I don't know that I want to do the the bigger uh, game that is going to draw more people for the first one. So I'm going to do these other games that are smaller, smaller in scope. Uh, easier to manufacture, easier to print and publish and cheaper, right? Build a crowd, build some fans, you know, grow, learn, figure out the, the manufacturing, the, the fulfillment, all of those things, make mistakes that are going to, in you know, that are, go- are going to happen. And then later do the bigger game. Once I've built a foundation of fans, built a foundation of people that like the game, that want the game, you know, it's similar system and that kind of thing. And then, and then do the bigger game. That's going to draw more people later. You got to be careful. You don't necessarily want your first campaign to go viral and to make Hundred grand, five hundred grand, million dollars—it's awesome. That's a cool thing. It's a good problem to have, but you're going to make some really big mistakes, guaranteed. And so, do you want to multiply those mistakes by three hundred backers or by three thousand backers? Right? Because so if you make a one dollar mistake on the three hundred backer game, okay, it's three hundred dollars. Versus three thousand backer game, that's three thousand dollars. Now, if you make a ten dollar mistake. Okay, now we're talking in some real, real money. And so you got to be careful. You don't necessarily want that first game to be this giant mega hit. And you you might want to slow play a little bit. That way you can learn and grow and and figure things out. Build a crowd, build build an audience. They will trust you. They'll tell their friends. And then the next project or the next or the next, then you start doing some really, really cool things. And so... I'm hoping ten gallon tank is, is that for you guys? It's this way to kind of get into the industry. You know, it's probably not going to make 150 grand, or <laughs> I hope it makes a million, but more than likely, it's it's going to be more humble, and that's probably a good thing. And so, I'm excited for you guys as far as that goes. Now, one thing, let me ask you about this. Uh, as far as the um, the flicking game, now I'm a huge fan of dexterity games. You know, my first game on Kickstarter was a dexterity game. If I had to go back and do it again, I would actually do what you're doing, and I would do it second uh, because dexterity games are a very very hard sell. On Kickstarter, it's not it's not something that people are, are super excited about. They, they love certain things on Kickstarter. It's a very certain kind of market. And so I think what you guys are doing, I would actually do something similar. If I could go back and change it, I would do a, a smaller game and then do a dexterity game later. Uh, and just for anyone thinking about doing multiple games, another thing you, you can do. Uh, you can ship the games at the same time, especially if they're done. If they're both almost done or you got art and graphic design, you know, if you can manufacture them and ship them around the same time, you can save a whole lot of money shipping two games at the same time, as opposed to shipping one game, you know, now one game, six months from now, whatever. You you can save money because you're putting them in the same container. So just some things to think about. What other things have you guys run into business-wise that are just been really cool things to learn, little nuances of the industry that could help somebody listen to this, trying to figure it out for the first time themselves? Right, so I think
1: one thing that a lot of people don't uh, may not know, um, and is a key term when you're when you're looking to produce something and ship it, is margin. So, I mean, for us, we're trying to figure out how many mistakes can we make. So, if I know that if I'm going to charge fifteen dollars for a game, and it costs me two dollars to produce and five dollars for all the shipping and freight and all that, well, that gives me some room. Again, for us, it's not about, and as you mentioned, it's not about making the money. And and for us, if we were exactly $0 left in the bank after this project and it was successful, that's a huge win for us because it's going to get us in the door, um, and get a following. And so then people will be, Hey, these guys have done a successful Kickstarter. So I don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to put a hundred percent of effort into it. This isn't just a, a quick thing for them. I had a great idea in my basement and now here I am on Kickstarter. Um, so that, but, but learning about taking every dollar and cent, um, and I think, uh, I, I've used Excel for most of my uh, professional career, but even I went out and said, I, I'd like to get a template from someone who's done a successful Kickstarter. And there are a bunch of them out there to figure out what's my funding goal. What are all the things I at least need to have a cell in my spreadsheet to fill in? Whether or not I just put in a, a, a big number in there uh, as, as sort of a risk mitigator, if I, if I don't know exactly what I'm going to have, you can at least use that and then say, all right, If I have to order, you know, 1500 units of this as a minimum, um, then I'm going to have to, you know, for every mistake I make on this, it's going to cost me an extra dollar. So do I have that within my MSRP? And then, and that's a big thing too, is MSRP. And I think there's a lot of, a lot going back and forth, um, and people need to realize. So I think, let me back up just a little bit. A lot of people say, okay, 5X of your production cost is what your, your retail cost would be. Um. And so, but what people don't understand is a lot of the people who, and I'm not saying anything bad about Jamie Stegmaier, he's, he's awesome, but he's a huge publisher and whatever he touches is going to turn to gold. And he has a lot of infrastructure that most small publishers aren't going to have. So you really have to think like, what, how am I going to be, like, what cost am I going to actually incur in terms of each of the different production costs? Am I going to get any, uh, you know? any price break because I I've done successful projects. And so you hear a lot about five X and then that, but that may not work for your project. Um, because, you know, a lot of things like our game, um, the shipping costs are, they're lower because it's a smaller game, but they're still sort of fixed. You have to pay for the freight, which isn't going to um, change. As long as all, everything fits on one pallet, you're going to pay the same, whether you have one game or 10 games, whether it's a huge game or a small game, doesn't matter. Um, so you really need to, uh, learning about that and and building up saying, here's my MSRP. Now I'm going to subtract every dollar for every every unit. I have this cost and I'm going to, and my freight is divided by number of units. So that's part of the dollars and cents that come out. Now, what am I left with? That's basically your, your management reserve. If you want to get into project management, that's what you have left over for mistakes for, for your known unknowns and your unknown unknowns. And so that's really like a key concept, learning about margin. Um, And especially if you, so one other, one other piece about margin would be, if you do want to look to build a business and build capital, eventually you're going to want to have money left over at the end of your campaign so that you can take on a more aggressive project. So for us, Flicked and Furious, it'd be nice to have some money left over in the bank to say, all right, if we make a $20,000 mistake, we've made this, extra, you know, this money in our bank, we can take that. That's extra money that we have to make this project a success. Um, so you really have to pay close attention to margin. And, and as you go through the process, um, adjust and learn.
2: And then on, on the design and the development aspect, one thing that we learned and we tried this out really um, from the really close to the beginning was, I give this piece of advice to a lot of people on Twitter or I was on, active on board game design forum website for a while. And I talked a lot about my number one piece of advice is, hire just like we did, a consultant professional developer who doesn't mind hurting your feelings, who it's not a big cost because they generally charge hourly. So it might just be pay for a couple hours, have them read your rules, play a game with them you know, at the next uh, convention you go to, and get a professional opinion. That's been super helpful for us. That was probably, I would say, one of the smarter things we did early on. And that's it, it's been critical.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that gets back into, okay, are you publishing a game or are you becoming a publisher? Because if you're becoming a publisher, you go out and get the development done, right? You, you almost have to, right? Get the professional editing for your rulebook. All those different things that a publisher would do that you might not do if this is just, you know, if you're a one and done company, I'm just going to do this Kickstarter and hopefully make some money and that's it. Okay, then you've got a little more leeway. But if you're trying to become a company, build a foundation, build some raving fans, you definitely want to go that extra mile for your product right? And so another thing that, that a lot of people, I feel like going into Kickstarter, there's kind of two ways of looking at it as far as the the money on the back end. And you brought up one way and then uh, there's also kind of a, a different uh, train of thought. So your direction right now is, okay, we're going to try to make some money and then we'll take that extra and we'll pour it into the next project. And then you're, you're trying to build and go from there, right? And that's actually my my uh, viewpoint as well. is like, okay, I'm going to take X percentage of the profits from this This campaign, and then I'm going to fund art and graphic design and prototypes and that, whatever, for the next game, the next project coming down the road. And hopefully it's going to build and build and build and build. And so if I had 500 backers this time, hopefully for the next game, I can get a thousand and then 2000 and then four, and you're kind of building it as you go. And you need some startup capital every, for every single project to do that. the other train of thought that a lot of people do is they just pour every single last dime from the Kickstarter campaign into printing as many games as they possibly can. So if they made $30,000 then they're going to spend all $30,000 and a lot of times people go in the hole to print as many copies as they can and then try to sell all of those copies because all of those you know, are going to bring in more profit and you can print more uh, games, which means your uh, manufacturing cost goes down. So you can save a little bit more money on the front end printing per, per game and then hopefully sell all the copies on the back end. Now, one thing to think about if you're going to take that approach, is if you're a first-time publisher, it is unlikely, almost 0% chance, that you're going to get into distribution, that you're going to get into retail stores all over the country, all over the world. That is very, very unlikely. There's some pros and cons of that. And so realize you're probably going to have to sell all of these through the internet, maybe on Amazon, but the games are going to have to sit somewhere. And how long is it going to take to sell all those thousands of games that you just manufactured? Are they sitting in your garage and really annoy your wife every time she goes out there there to get into the car because there's six pallets of games in there? And that's something you have to think about. Are they sitting in a warehouse where you're having to pay rental? You know, are you having to rent space every single month—is that worth it? And so, it's just some things to think about as a first-time publisher. What are you going to do with the extra money? Are you going to put it into just buying as many games as you can, or are you going to you know print a bunch of games? You know, like for instance, with the Final Foot tier, it had around right around 400 backers. And so I printed 750 copies, right? Very humble, very small, just trying to get my foot in the door, figure these things out. And if I get to do another campaign down the road, maybe an expansion, something like that, awesome. But it wasn't something I'm like, okay, I'm going to print 3,000 of these games and hopefully I can sell them. Because I didn't feel confident that I could sell, you know, 2,500 more games. I feel like I could sell maybe 400 more games. <laughs> and so that's what I did. So just some things to think about uh, as far as your your game. Uh, it goes 10 gallon tank. What are you guys thinking about as far as those things right there? Have you looked into, you know, where housing costs and you know websites and trying to sell stuff after the game actually gets manufactured?
1: Yeah. So right now we're actually, we actually decided, so this is another um, kind of decision point for us is, and a lot of people have to make it. Are you going to fulfill the game yourself and get everything shipped to your garage, pack it, ship it, label it and pay the individual shipping costs or um, you could go with a fulfillment company. So we are planning right now I mean it will depend on the, how, the, how the campaign shakes out, but we are planning right now on going with a fulfillment company um, where we will ship the games there and they will do a lot of the, the the management of the shipping addresses and shipping all the games out. So we can focus on making sure that the product is the best product and we can kind of we can learn the process but have a professional actually fulfill it. So that's a, a pretty big cost for us. Um, so again, we kind of mentioned before, like our goal is if we we fulfilled our campaign and maybe we have a couple of games left over, but we made zero money, that's a win for us because we've had a successful campaign and that's where we want to start. Um, but that is a for for us, we're gonna to attempt to go with a with a fulfillment company to have some of that burden taken off of us and then you know we can focus on, Adding, if we have if we have stretch goals, working on the stretch goals, working on getting the game into the the best possible components and quality, and providing the best possible customer service for people on Kickstarter if they have concerns, um, and we don't have to worry about as much because again, both of us have full time jobs, two kids, wife, other extracurricular hobbies, um, so for us that made sense um, and it worked with um, the costs that we currently had for for ten gallon tank.
2: Right, and we don't have any illusions that. Mm. We're going to sell every single copy. Like you said, you're, you you're had like 300 and some backers and it ordered 700. We're probably each going to have a couple hundred sent to us, to our places, so we can take them to local game, gaming shops, we can take them to local conventions we go to, uh, so we can have some copies to sell as well. We want to have those leftovers um, after the Kickstarter campaign. We know that... Um, there's some, a lot of legwork to be done afterwards to, you know, continue selling because again, we're still thinking about this as we're building a brand we're building a company. So yeah, that's, that's part of it too. And to
1: add on to what you said before, Gabe, about selling games, not through distribution, you have to hustle if you're going to sell games at a convention. I mean, I've seen people there who have had to pay for booths to sell their products. And I mean, even then sometimes, you know, there's nobody at the booth. And so you have to really hustle. So if, if you're going to, if you really want to, not just like you said, publish a game, but become a game publisher, that's a big piece that you have to be willing to put in the work, um, you know, build a following on Twitter or social media. And then just always, you have to always be on. It's like when you're, when you work for yourself, you're always on. If you take a day off, you're not making money. So, or you're not selling your games or you're not, you know, you miss a convention, then you're, you know, you're not, that's potential profit that you lost. So you, Really have to hustle and sell those games. That's another thing for for new folks to consider as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And going back to what you were saying about fulfillment, I, I just don't know that it makes a lot of sense to do it yourself in this day and age. There are so many amazing fulfillment companies. I mean, Quartermaster Logistics—they sponsor my show, and I, I've used them in the past to fulfill games. I've used other companies as well. And by the time you, so they get price breaks. On the shipping because they do so much shipping they get price breaks that the normal person's not going to be able to get and so by the time you pay them right for whatever cost you know, the the packing fee and all the pack, all the stuff it almost breaks even by what you would have had to to pay yourself it's, it's usually not that big of a difference as far as the actual overall cost and then you think about the opportunity cost and how much time it's going to take you to ship however many games out of your your basement out of your garage the hassle you got to run back to Walmart or Home Depot to get more tape. Oh, you ran out of boxes. You got to order though. Like, it's just such a hassle. And then you have all the issues of, uh, of just shipping. So shipping just comes with tons and tons of issues. Hey, my package never showed up. Hey, it went to the wrong ad- address. Hey, I forgot to tell you that I moved yesterday. And so now I'm in a different state and now what are we going to do? <laughs> so it's just a lot of hassle. And I can just point them to my fulfillment partner and say, Hey, talk to them. They have all the tracking information. They have all the things. If you didn't get your game, they'll send you another one. I'm just going to sit here and keep working on games and working on my business. And so it's just something to think about when you're doing this, especially if you're by yourself, you guys at least have two of you. We can kind of split the work if you wanted to, but fulfillment companies make a lot of sense. And so anything else that you've learned business-wise or designing-wise, right? So David, maybe let's talk from the designing angle. Working on these games, this one in particular and then other ones, anything from the designing thing that makes the game easier to publish, especially for a first timer, especially for a new company, what are some things you've had to think about from a design standpoint just to make it as easy to get to the publishing as possible?
2: The components are a big part of that. Uh, obviously, we talked about you know a large dexterity combat racing game with big neoprene mats and miniature cars that are flicked across and... Uh, Obviously, that has major, major, you know, issues with shipping and logistics and um, those raise the prices up a lot. So what is a little bit more attainable is, I mean, 10 gallon Tank is a card game. That's it's simple to produce. It's simple for players to understand, uh, especially since it's a lighter game. It is a family game. It's a gateway game. Uh, they're not jumping into something with a thousand cubes and, you know, modular boards. Don't get me wrong. I love those games, but we're thinking strategically in terms of the game we pick. And so a game with simple components, a game that's simple to, to, to teach someone, we wanted a game that would be, you could teach someone the game in three minutes and you could set up the game in one minute and you can play the game in under 20 minutes and so, for a first game, that just seemed like a really good uh, move to make. And of course, you know, we started to design of the game. Uh, the first theme actually wasn't even fish, and it had it was a cooking game. And so, then then once we started down that road of the design, okay, we did actually sit down and talk about themes some and mechanics. And the game eventually split into two different games. Um, and there's a whole nother game that came off the original iteration. And so, um, I guess from a design and development, you know, piece of advice: um, think about how easy the game is to pick up, uh, how to teach, uh, especially if this is your first game. Uh, start simple.
0: Yeah, for sure. Another thing to think about, and go, going back to your components is the box size and what goes into the box. And so all right, more than likely your first game is probably not going to be in retail stores. Maybe a few, maybe a few people will back your Kickstarter, a few retailers and it'll go to their stores, but more than likely it's not going to be on hardly any retail shelves. That's something very important to keep in mind, because if that's, if your, if your game's in retail, you want the box to be kind of big, right? Because that way, when people walk by the shelf, they look around, the bigger box stands out. That's why so many games you buy from a, a local friendly uh, game store, friendly local game. whatever whatever. whatever flgs Uh, that's why so many games you buy from those places the box is actually probably a good bit too big for the game you'll open it up you're like wow they could have fit this game in half the size of the box yes but you might not have seen it on the shelf when you walked by because the bigger box stands out and so that's something to think about if your game is in retail if it's not going to retail then make the box smaller. Make it as small as you can, and that way it's cheaper to ship. Make sure it fits in some of those flat rate, the smallest flat rate, the cheapest flat rate box that you can. That way it's a whole lot cheaper to ship, a whole lot cheaper to fulfill, at least in the United States. A little bit different once you get international and and, different fulfillment companies in uh, the EU and Australia. It's different there, but at least in the US, make that game as small as it can possibly be to fit in the box as small as it possibly can because it's a lot cheaper. So just some different things to think about. I mean, with, with hunted, I had, let's see, with the pledge manager, I've got, I don't know, close to 1800 backers and five of them are retailers. All right. So five out of 1800, my game is going to be in five retail stores around the world. And so I'm not going to design a game that's going to stand out on retail shelves because that's not where the market is for me right now. Jamie Stegmaier, Stonemaier Games, totally different market or, uh, you know, Companies that are going to Kickstarter now that have a huge presence in retail, huge presence in distribution, they're thinking differently than I'm going to think or you guys are going to think being a first-time you know, new publisher as far as your box size and that kind of thing. So just something else uh, to think about. And box size is also twofold in that it's cheaper to produce.
2: I mean, we've, we've gotten quotes from multiple companies on actually now multiple games. We've seen the price of the box is generally one of the largest pr- uh, costs of a game. Yeah, and it's if, usually
0: the biggest cost.
2: Absolutely. And it
1: was, and it was really the sort of the the death knell mm-hmm. for now of our bigger game flicked and furious, because we were going to have to, we were going to have to figure out how to get a uh, 27 by 44 Matt uh, into, we, we talked about having to put it in a tube because it has to be rolled. If it's folded, you lose the experience. If you cut it in half, you lose the experience. And so, I mean, that's just like, just, uh, what do you, where do you put the components? We, so we talked about, Okay, you are gonna roll the mat up, and then you're gonna put the components in the the center where there's where there's like the gap, or are we gonna have extend the box out and have a little little space in there to put components? So it's a it's a huge thing if you you know just to, designing boxes, and that for us is what really made us rethink trying to publish a really big game first um, and having all those extra variables that we really don't know much about. I mean, I don't know of any game, maybe Flick Wars. Which was a dexterity game that had a, a a really atypical box, like a I think it was a it was a triangle, but like extended and they that's he that's how he put it, his neoprene mat. So something like that. I mean, there's very few. So it's uncharted territory for someone who's already in uncharted waters. It just didn't make sense. So it's definitely something to consider.
0: Yeah, and just continuing the the box conversation, another thing to think about is game shelves. So in people's houses, if if a game doesn't fit very well on a shelf, it is much more likely to get given away, get sold, get traded, not get played, get lost behind, whatever. If it doesn't fit on the shelf, very well or if it doesn't stack very well and that's just another thing to think about is this game going to fit on people's shelves a smaller box is easier to fit on a shelf at home even if it's not better on a shelf in retail so it's just something to think about and this is a lot of stuff you don't realize until after you've done it and then you know it it didn't work out or you kind of learn learn the hard way so if you're listening to this please take these words to heart Uh, we we have done some things and made some mistakes and so please trust us and, and learn from our mistakes so you don't have to make the same ones as well all right. So we alluded to this a moment ago. We we're talking about social media, talking about marketing, talking about how in the world you get the game in front of people. It's, it's a crowded market out there. It's super noisy. I don't think it's super saturated. I think there are plenty of people still out there trying to buy games, you know, super excited about new games coming out. You can see that all over Facebook. But what do you guys, what have you been doing and what's your advice to people just starting out, just trying to start out? As far as social media, marketing, developing a presence online, developing a, a presence kind of in the media, out in the world, more than just you and your, your game design little basement or whatever, but actually getting out there and selling the game, selling yourself. Well,
2: my first piece of advice is to just talk to people. It, it didn't start out as trying to do Twitter to build a brand. It started out talking to people because I was interested in what they had to say. And uh, we wanted to seek you know, wisdom of others. And so we could um, get kind of that conversation rolling, but we did strategically choose, you know, like years ago, let's start this LLC knowing that year, we're probably not publishing a game. You know, year two, we may not even be publishing a game, but let's start building the brand and let's start getting active and let's start engaging with folks. and so we've been on, goodness, Twitter for over three years now, active on it. Uh, like I said, I've been active on the board game design form website for a while. And so a lot of it was just engaging with people, uh, you know, talking about what games they're designing, what, you know, what feedback you have for them. And then a lot of times they were happy to reciprocate and give feedback back to you. And so that's that's kind of been uh, one mantra just in terms of just engaging with people, being involved. Um, yeah, and, and this is like a really small thing, but I
1: think it's kind of interesting for folks. You know, if you're going to go on to Kickstarter and you're going to try and build a brand, um, I'm not saying you need to you need to go and, and buy a support Kickstarter projects that you don't believe in or you don't want to play, but we actually strategically, we created a Winsmith Games Kickstarter knowing we were going to publish a game, hopefully, but leaving our option open and every game that we back, whether it's my game or Dave's game that he wants to play is through that account. So, um, you know, if you look at our Kickstarter page, you'll see that this is our first project created, but we backed, you know, 40 projects or something like that. And I think I even, I even had my own Kickstarter account and had accidentally backed a game on there, canceled it and went on Winsmith games and backed it. And And it's a small thing. Um, and it's not, you should not expect that if you back 40 projects that, even one person's going to back your project, but what Dave is kind of mentioning and is kind of giving back to the community before you ask for anything from the community. Um, so he's done, he was just on board game design forums, like not even saying, hey, "Hey, I have a game." Just, "Hey, how do you get into this? Hey, do you have something I can look at? I'll I'll edit your rules, or I'll play I'll play test your game. I'll do give me a print and play, and I'll play it and let you know what I think." Um, so you you really that's the way I think you're going to build a following. Um, and, and let people know that you're not just, again, had this idea in my basement. I'm going to go on Kickstarter and I expect everybody's going to back my game. I mean, you need to put in a lot of legwork to give to the community. I think before you ask for something in, in return, at least that's, that's our strategy.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think going back to what you were just saying about backing other projects on Kickstarter. All right. If if somebody goes to your campaign and they see a first time creator, 20 backed, 40 backed, five backed, anything, anything, anything backed. Okay, that's not necessarily a reason that they're going to back your game. However, if they go to your campaign and they see first project created, zero projects backed, they might not back you because of that. Like, it just is what it is. I, I even get skeptical. Like, who is this person who's come out of nowhere who has zero projects backed? Like, did, like what are they doing? Like, I just don't trust. Like, there's a little bit of, of doubt in my mind right off the bat, right, right from the get go of who is this person because they're not established at all. They haven't done anything in the community as far as I know, right? And so that might be a reason why people don't, back you. Like they might, it might be just enough doubt for them to go, I'm not going to give this person my money. And so right. it's just something to think about. It, it might not get you more backers to have a lot of you know, projects you back, but it could definitely lose you some if they can't tell that you're anybody that, that they want to trust, right? They're, they're not going to trust you fully yet because you haven't proven anything to them. You have to deliver a game uh, with excellence and, and, you know, try to deliver it as on time as you can and you know, provide as, as great a customer service as possible to build their trust ultimately but, you know, is it, you want to do everything you can to have that trust from the get-go. And so I think that's a, a really smart thing. Now, anything else as far as mistakes that you guys have already made? Anything that, that other up-and-coming first-time publishers could learn from as far as like what what you've done already? I think maybe we,
1: we kind of touched on it earlier, but just um, doing, doing kind of the – it seems – great to go out and and find a bunch of art for your game and prototypes and but if you can find a local group just take your pen and paper game and your your cubes and dice and just play test it before you go into it i mean we didn't spend a lot of money but we spent a couple hundred bucks spent a couple hundred bucks getting some art and if you looked at the art you'd be like man i really want to play this game because the game the art was fantastic um and for our for that first game game con that we talked about um we even had the idea of you go to a booth and every booth name is a play on words of a real publisher's name. And so that's like, just kind of like a cool thing, but we were like all jazzed about it. I mean, we probably had half a dozen pieces of art done. Just don't do that. And that's the, that's the first thing our developer said in his email. He's just, cause we were like, we had an intro conversation with him and he's like, tell me about it. Tell me where you're at. And we're like, Oh, we did this. Yeah. We got this. Yeah. We bought somewhere. He's like, okay, stop, stop paying money. Don't spend any more money. Send me your rules and your pen and paper prototype, and I'll tell you what I think. So that's just something else to learn because you're probably not going to spend thousands of bucks, but you could, and you may be disappointed. And you may make a bad decision of, I'm already 3,000 into this. I got to go to Kickstarter, or I'm just going to make 500 copies of this and people will buy it. And then you're out even more money trying to ship it to people. No one knows who you are and no one wants to buy from you. So... Do the do the background work if you can. Get a developer. Uh, you know, maybe your game is the next Gloomhaven. It's your first game, and you're just the god of board game creators and make the best board game in the world. But you're probably not. We're probably not. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, stay humble. We kind of talked about it a little bit, but that's definitely a lesson that we've we've
2: I think we learned early on, which which has definitely helped us. And as as a designer, thing something that I always try and do is do something. Maybe not every day, but. I do something at least every other day or multiple days a week. I'm always trying to do something, even if it's rereading or uh, you know, or some rule books or something, or rere uh, pull, pulling out a prototype and just making it hit the board, throwing some dice around, and trying to make something happen. So be consistent. I think is you say that all the time, Gabe, and it's I like to have that reinforced, and so I'm also reinforcing it. Be consistent be active and always just try and get something done to keep, to to not lose momentum or to better yet build momentum.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, If you want to be good at anything, do it every day. Uh, And that goes actually both ways. I was talking to my seniors the other day. I've had a lot of issues this year with with some of them. I think they had senioritis like five years ago when they were seventh graders. They already had senioritis and it's just gotten worse and worse. And now they're in 12th grade and they just really don't care and don't want to be in school. And I understand that to a certain degree. Uh, But they're having a really hard time showing up to my class on time and it's every day. And so I had a very real conversation with them a while back. And I said, guys, okay, do you think if you went out into the business world right now that you would show up to your job on time? And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. I said, why would you think that when you spent every day showing up late? Like you've gotten really, really good at showing up late. And you think you're just going to flip a switch one day and and all of a sudden be able to show up earlier on time? No, no, it doesn't happen that way because you've already built the habit of showing up late. And that's why it's so important to show up to my, you know, 12th grade English class. That's, you know, it's not some big grand thing. Like you're not going to get a job necessarily because you took this class in high school. Uh, but you might keep your job because the habits you created in this class in high school. And I think it's the same with with game design. You want to be good at it, do it every day or as close to every day as you can. Even if it's just five minutes, do something, right? Even if it's just taking five, 10 minutes and just pondering, just thinking about game design, like even that, because that can lead to some really cool things. But just scheduling that time and being as consistent as you possibly can and assuming that, especially as a first time publisher, assuming you're not going to be an outlier, assuming you're not going to have some kind of crazy luck uh, of, of, of an experience and, and do this kind of viral thing that you didn't put any marketing in, you didn't, you know, and it just went crazy, made hundred grand, made 200 grand, whatever, you're probably not going to be that. And so assuming you're not going to be an outlier, what do you need to do in order to be successful? And, and just kind of figuring that stuff out early on and being strategic as you go. Anything else you guys want to add as a closing thoughts for being a first time publisher? I think we have it organically
1: because there's two of us, but if you can find somebody who can play devil's advocate with you um, on any topic, I think it's, it's invaluable. Someone who is invested in your project, not necessarily, you know, a a game developer, they're going to give you different pieces of advice about the mechanics of your game and whether this game is marketable, but also having somebody who can look at something and give you critical feedback who you trust and you won't, and you can take that to heart. I think we've, we play off each other really well um, in terms of, you know, D- Dave, ha- like I said, he does all the designs and then he'll, well, he'll talk to me and I'll just, I'll just say, well, wait, why would you do that? Why would you, you know, why don't we, is that going to be able to sell? How's that going to be, you know, and he'll do the same thing when we're talking about, well, i about, do, about, you know, putting this as like a stretch goal. Well, why would we do that? And you know, so it's, if you can find somebody that you who understands what you're the arena that you're in, cause you probably have a local game group, hopefully somebody in there is somebody that you, you trust their opinion um and have them play devil's advocate. It works well for us cuz we're in business together. Um so I'm in, I'm definitely invested in anything Dave does and I think he's <laughs> invested in anything I do. Um so finding that person I think is is definitely critical um and can help you you, just, you know it doesn't have to be somebody you pay hours but just somebody you can bounce off in an email or you know text or whatever.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I want to add one thing real quick to that just from personal experience. If you have a friend or somebody close family member somebody that's a graphic designer that can be in that role that you're talking about. It is a tremendous boon to your company. Uh, it's one of the biggest blessings of my life that my friend drew, uh, who does, all, does all the graphic design for my games and books and whatnot. Uh, he's, he's amazing. And there's been so many times where I've had an idea for something and said, Hey, I, I want to do it like this. And he'll come back and go, yeah, it's, that's an okay idea. But from a graphic design standpoint, from a user experience standpoint, this over here is going to work a lot better if we do it here. If we put the icons here, if we use this font, if we use this color scheme, color, whatever, because he has such an art for graphic design and like the way people experience things. Right. And so if you can have somebody like that, you can bounce ideas around and bounce ideas off of. Man, it's a huge, huge blessing, and it's going to save you in the long run of people being able to play your game, understand it, access, you know, just the accessibility of the game. So, yeah, I definitely fully agree with that, what you're saying. And if if that person can be a graphic designer or somebody in that space, it's an even bigger win. Well, gentlemen, we've talked a good bit about 10-gallon tank and what kind of game it is and that kind of thing. Uh, Give me like a 30-second pitch. Tell people why they should go to Kickstarter right now and back the game well
2: again it's a family weight game it's a gateway game it's if you like sushi go if you like sunday split go nuts for uh go nuts for donuts um if you like those style games there's a good chance you'd be interested in 10 gallon tank um if you like games that have beautiful illustrations and really pop on the table uh, and that are easy to teach it's it's that style of game as well it is a again to, plays two to five players plays in 15 minutes uh i split basically everyone splits and choose it is a game where players are uh, again splitting the fish the grid into smaller groups and then they're all drafting them so it's kind of got this that two level of decision making how do you split and then what do you pick and then to add on to
1: that just from uh Not really, not really a shameless plug, but the two of us are. If you're if you're worried because we're a first time creator, just know we're telling you that I think this hopefully this podcast has shed some light. We're putting in the work for this. We've we've tried to think about as much. This isn't something we've we've jumped into hastily. Um, We are both we both try and be as perfectionist as possible. Um, We're I'm sure we'll make some mistakes, but we'll do our best. Um, We are invested in building a brand and invested in getting the best product out there. Um, So. That's just our words, but I, I thought it was it was good to mention. You know, we are at local conventions in the DC area. We go to Gen Con every year. Um, we're on Twitter um, and and very active. So you know, hit us up on, on Twitter and just talk to us if you're if you're on the fence about it. Um, check us out, and you know if you if it's something that you'd like, uh, we'd we'd really appreciate that you back the project.
0: And on Twitter, we are at Winsmith Games. Awesome. And uh, you also get to impress your friends because you know what the word Aquarist means.
2: <laughs> What's funny is we just had the voiceover actress do our Kickstarter video and she had like any special requests or anything I need to know. And I had to Google how to pronounce the word Aquarist just so I could show her phonetically, you know, how it's pronounced. But yeah, that was kind of neat to learn that.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, gentlemen, Travis, David, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with 10 Gallon Tank on Kickstarter right now and everything else you got going on.
2: Awesome. Thanks for having us.
0: We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting
2: for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding
0: fulfillment and warehousing.